Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins. We both work here at Garden Organic and we're here to give you advice and tips on organic gardening. I love May. To me, it's the most beautiful month of the year. Cowslips and apple blossom. What more could you ask for? Plus, the days are getting longer and there are two bank holidays, which means all the more time to be out and about and loving your garden. This month, our guest is Frances Tophill. You may know her from the TV show Love Your Garden, as well as from Gardener's World. But we meet the private Frances, who shares her love of plants. I imagined when I started gardening, I'd do design because I've always been very creative, but didn't actually go down that route at all. And what I found a fascination with was plants from the beginning. And finally, our postbag brings questions on plum trees, a devastating new fruit fly pest, and whether it's too late to re-sow after spring frosts. But first, a quick reminder that this podcast is supported by our brilliant sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. They're proud to offer a complete range of organic gardening products, from seeds and plants to equipment. Check out their range of water butts, particularly useful if, like me, you're having a very dry spring. Shop online at organiccatalogue.com. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. Now, I hope wherever you are, you enjoy listening. I'm off to the potting shed to join Chris. Morning, Chris. How are you? Morning, Sam. Very well, thank you. You? I'm very well, actually. Do you know, I've just come in from my compost heap. Have you? <laughs> That's the place to be in May, isn't it, really? <laughs> well, you know those first weeds that are already coming through. So I'm putting the weed foliage onto the compost heap. Not the perennials, I have to add, with those root systems, but the weed foliage. I'm also putting my old brassicas, my winter brassicas, that have really now come to the end of their useful life. I'm chopping them up really fine and putting them on the compost heap. I did cut the grass a a week ago and I'm putting the grass cuttings on. So I'm beginning to build up that compost heap, which I had emptied to put on my beds for the spring growth. And by building it up now, I'm going to have stuff for later in the year when, again, when I need it. Yeah, it's gold dust. It really is. And um, I've done the same. I put in new um, compost beds on the allotment as I had the big makeover this winter and uh, I'm stuff going on there. You've got obviously you've made a good important point there about browns and greens making sure you put your weeds on your grass clippings but make sure you balance it with something drier and dead if you like so i tend to get old cardboard boxes seem to be abundant and i always tear them up quite fine and throw them on mix them together so it keeps it nice doesn't get it too wet and too soggy you keep it the right sort of medium going brassicas you're right good they've all, all the kale and loaded really nice kale over the last couple of months but that's come to an end you make a good point again they get very pithy especially the stems and if you don't cut them up fine then they just sit in the compost and don't break down to be honest you talk about wet sludge on the compost heap nothing is wet at the moment with me chris it's been very (laughs) very dry april i don't know if you found the same ironically i'll water the compost bin if it's too dry i'll actually yeah i do too (laughs) yeah so but yeah i I mean you called it right you said um the last month i think you said that we might get dry april it might happen and it's just been I mean, it's like a dust bowl in places. It's incredible. Mm. And cold, really very cold at night. I've had some heavy frosts. Yeah, quite challenging um, year this year, this spring. It's, it's a bit of a curveball, as nature always gives us a bit of a curveball. I went fishing um, last week and uh, I went out, I was all chuffed, the first fish of the year. And I, oh, I was in like a hooded top jacket, woolly hat. I was freezing cold in the morning. <laughs> oh, what a minute, it's May. <laughs> so, <laughs> I said, these are challenges that uh, we are facing at the moment. And every year is different. And this, this one certainly... Uh, is throwing up some challenges. And we're recording this at the beginning of May when 
we've had a particularly dry, cold April. And who's to say that May won't be warm and wet? Who knows? It's also, I suspect, different in different parts of the country. At the moment, the weather forecast, we've definitely got two halves, haven't we? It's been wet and, and moist up in Scotland, and it's been dry as a dust bowl down south. So, yeah, it's fun as a gardener. You're also a weatherman. Well, you need to keep a close eye on what's going on on a daily basis, I would argue, because if you've got tender plants and you've maybe put them out to harden off for a few hours and you know, you're going to lose them if you're not keeping an eye on that weather. So you're always one one eye on what, what the sky's doing, I think. It's also meant that I've been very late with my seed sowing and my plant. Well, I say late. I've held off on my seed sowing and my planting out just because the ground is potentially frost ridden. The soil hasn't warmed up. But also, I think you'd agree, Chris, that you really have to wait until your seedlings are mature before you risk putting them out in the ground. Yeah, it's important. It's This is what I call, in gardening terms, the month of jeopardy, because it's, you're not quite out of the cold. You're not quite into the summer yet. You've got to be really, really careful about those. And you mentioned letting the seedlings get a bit bigger. That's a defo, because obviously that helps protect from slugs. You get a thing called lignin that starts to come into the leaves. They don't like eating that. You've got less chance of attack. That hardening off process is incredibly important. Putting them out during the day, letting them sun up, making sure the wind isn't too cold on them, because that will cause damage putting them away again in the evening, back in your cold frames, your cloches. So they're just gradually acclimatising to the weather before the big plant out. Interesting that you mentioned slugs, Chris. We never talk about slugs, do we? <laughs> no, there's the bane, you know, the bane of our lives in many ways, aren't they? Especially <laughs> this time of year with all the babies around. Yeah, well, I think it'd be actually quite interesting to talk about slugs and all the other pests that we're going to be seeing this month. And also maybe some tips on how to deal with them without reaching for those toxic chemicals. So slugs, I think one of the best things you can do for slugs is traps and barriers. So basically anything that's dry material, if you can put put round your plants, a lot of people use oatmeal, for instance, or grit or shells. Slugs don't like crawling across them and snails certainly don't. And then there are traps like beer in saucers. That's a very popular one. And finally, you can, if you're so inclined, you can go out at night with a torch and catch them yourself if you're not squeamish. So there's plenty of things you can do before you reach for the slug pellets. There certainly is. This is where I find them a problem is when I've taken all the plants out of my house, they've been out the propagators, pricked them out, and now they're going down to the allotment into the polytunnel into cold frames and cloches and if it gets wet i can suffer from particularly keel slugs which is the really small slimy slug they can really attack those young plants they love that fresh tender sort of leaf that foliage always with slugs and snails it's a multiple defense so i put gravel down because they don't like crawling across that again that barrier thing and i think if i was going to really really get attacked then i do use an organic spray that you can get from the organic catalog which is uh, makes the leaves taste bitter and you kind of repeat spray that every sort of five or six days but i'd only be looking to do that if it was really wet and ideal conditions for the slug you don't want to get this far in with all those lovely little plants and then watch them get wiped out in one go because it's possible a large proportion of slugs actually live in the soil so the dry material it can work i find it works better against snails than slugs to be honest yeah. but there's plenty on the garden organic website about slugs and snails and how to manage them just go to gardenorganic.org.uk and search for slugs and snails and you'll find lots of ideas to prevent mm -hmm. slug and snail damage and then other things you might be facing this month, Chris, black fly on top of your beans. 
I think the best thing there is just to pinch out those tops, isn't it? Yeah, so there certainly seems to work because they congregate there first, don't they? And then kind of spread down the plant. Plus, it's quite nice to eat, isn't it? If as long as there's no black fly on them, they're quite, quite tasty, aren't they? Well, they are, but not if they're covered in black fly. You don't <laughs> fancy it somehow. So, yes, pinch out the top of your broad beans if you if you see signs of black fly. But black fly are a form of aphid, and there's plenty of those around at the moment. So I think I've got two things to say about aphids. One is you can squish them with your own hand. Put rubber gloves on if you're squeamish, but squish them, rub them off, use a jet of water, something to displace them or hold your nerve and wait first of all you're going to let the birds are going to feed on them and that's fantastic because they'll be feeding their babies on them but also if you hold your nerve and wait the ladybird will come along lay her larvae and they will be munching on those aphids so if you leave them there you're encouraging that whole natural cycle of pest and predator and if you take the pest away you've also lost the predator the lovely ladybird yeah, it's a very good point. That that patience as far as bio control is really important, isn't it? Um, there's no predator without the pests, so you can let them build up a bit. You can also plant uh, certain plants to help encourage the predator. I think fennel and hoverfly is a brilliant example of that because the average hoverfly larvae will eat over 500 aphids a day. So you want those characters around in the garden. So you always think about those those ways of getting the bio control into your site. That's a very good point, Chris. Another one that I'm going to be facing this month because I'll be, I hope, planting out my cabbages is cabbage white butterfly caterpillars. And I have to resort to mesh, fine mesh, which is pinned over the top of the seedlings and pinned very firmly down, not just to stop the butterflies going under it, but also you don't want to trap any birds in there. And then finally, I don't know about you, Chris, but last year I suffered hugely from flea beetle in my rocket. Very much so. But would you go to later planting? Because they tend to be very prevalent earlier in the season, don't they? Yes, I do. That's exactly right. This year I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until July because I think... Rocket, radish and other brassicas are very prone to flea beetle. And if you wait until July to sow and to plant out, then the chances are you've missed that first flush of infestation. Chris, I know you're a lawns man and I always turn to you for advice on my lawn. But what do you think about this thing called Nomo May, which I have to say I love saying. It sounds like a Japanese violinist, but <laughs> Nomo May, it's very simple. It's, it's what it says. Don't mow the lawn during the month of May. Put the mower away and let the grass and the flowers and the plants within the grass grow up and flower and feed the pollinators. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a superb idea. I would argue that it's probably nothing new. I think we uh, gardeners have been doing it for a long time. I've certainly have. I think I'll make a case for the both, really, because when I've been a head gardener in the past, we've always had areas where we've naturalised bulbs, okay, where we've taken bulbs and put them into the lawn. Q, you've got big areas when I was at Q where I've just been left to go uh, through May with it not being cut. Um, but also people like somewhere to sit and relax. So I would argue you can have both. It obviously depends on the size of your your space, your lawn, but why not naturalise some, naturalise two parts of it, two ends of it, then let them go through May, no mow May, let all the pollinators come in, get all that lovely flower. There's nothing more beautiful than the sight of a dandelion in flower. Sorry, it's such a nice, beautiful looking plant and the bees love it. You want those, you want to see the lawn, um, the daisies in it, maybe the bulbs coming through, but you know, you might also want to sit out there and kick a ball about or sit and have a picnic. So why not? It's perfectly feasible to do both, but I certainly would encourage everyone listening to have some form of no mo me. <laughs> 
I'll tell you another thing that I've been uh, looking at recently, and uh, we used to, we've, I've always kind of seen gardeners do this, and it's maybe worth mentioning to our listeners, is, uh, is plant support. We're always a bit of a windy country. There's always a wind around somewhere. And I was actually visiting Kew Gardens recently, and the gardeners there were using coppiced hazel as their plant support for the larger herbaceous plants. So those plants like phlox and maclea that get quite tall, that are prone to winds. They were getting these coppiced and hazel, which is like what happens with the hazel is when you cut it down, you get these multiple thin shoots and it's very flexible wood. And they arch them over and stick them in the ground, the two ends, round the plant, three pieces, and it just stops, just stops the wind bending them over, okay? So it's a really nice organic way to protect your basis plants and maybe other plants as well. Maybe you want your sweet peas to ramble up it, that kind of thing. It's very traditional English way of gardening, I would argue. I think you're right, Chris. And I think it also avoids you having to spend possibly quite a lot of money on some plastic. And there's a lot of products available to do exactly what you're saying that you can do with something natural like a length of hazel. If you can't get hold of hazel, what I've often done in previous years is when I've cut back my shrubs at the end of the year or early in spring, you cut, you, some of them you cut down quite hard and use those lengths of brown twiggy material as plant supports. I find them particularly helpful for when beans are first growing up a pole or for peas for instance they've got that number of twigs which allows the tendrils to attach to them so keep your cuttings if you can if you've got space to store them keep those branchy cuttings and they'll do something similar to your coppiced hazel that's a great idea chris you mentioned bulbs naturalizing in the long grass which is a nice thought how are your bulbs this year Oh, they've been absolutely fantastic. In fact, I'm sitting in my office now looking out onto the balcony, just watching the end of them. And they've been absolutely, they're all organic. I bought them all organic. They cost me a couple more quid. Not a great deal more, to be honest with you, Sarah. But they've just performed so beautifully. I think there's like a, a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes about organic material that it's not going to perform as well. But these, especially the daffs and the tulips, have been absolutely outstanding. But it's not going to be the end of them. Soon time for me to change things over. So I'll be looking at putting on my tender veg out there and my summer bedding, the usual colourful and edible display. So what I'll do is these will all get knocked out of the pots. And then they'll all be laid into crates, small crates, taken down the lot and let to dry naturally till all the foliage yellows up. So all the goodness is taken back into the bulb. And then I'm going to gorilla garden, Sarah. I'm going to go out into my car park out the front and I'm going to uh, sneak them into the ground for future years and future prosperity. Because I love the idea of that. It's not the end of them. I think sometimes because they're quite cheap and very ready available, people think you just use them like a cut flower. But no, because they can give you years and years and years of pleasure. I agree with you, Chris. Bulbs are not just for Christmas. And in fact, I have growing in my bed bulbs that we were given. We moved house 15 years ago and it was round about January time. And I we had a lot of very lovely housewarming presents, which happened to be because it was January. Hyacinths, bowls of hyacinths, which was lovely. And I planted those out later that year. And 15 years later, I've got banks of blue white hyacinths all all around the garden i love them it's such an easy way to garden and i think if you were starting out with gardening you're kind of guaranteed success and i i kind of think a gardener is built on confidence you know you see something happen you go oh, i want to try more i want to try more and i think bulbs are a really good in for that kind of thing a great one for the kids as well if you've got young kids or grandkids Get out and uh, naturalise those bulbs. Bit of gorilla gardening. Yeah, nice one, Chris. Well, we'll speak again next month, no doubt. Take care and enjoy your allotment. Maybe you'll get some rain. Us Southerners need it, don't we? I'll come soon enough, Sarah. I'll win. Cheers, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. 
I'm so excited to present our guest this month. Frances Tophill is known to millions from the television programmes Love Your Garden and Gardener's World. But behind the warm media presence is a fine plants woman and an inspired writer. Her most recent book is called Rewild Your Garden. Chatting with Francis was so interesting that I've decided not to squeeze our conversation into this month's podcast. Instead, I've divided our talk into two parts. We'll hear the first half now, when she tells us how she first got into gardening and her route to being a professional gardener. Then, in a separate episode, I'll explore with Francis the topic of rewilding, something that I know many of you are interested in. Look out for that in our next Unpruned podcast, published later in the month. It's a fascinating listen. But now, back to Frances and how she first started her gardening career. Frances, hello. How lovely to meet you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, not at all. It's a pleasure. Um, I think the obvious place to start would be what made you become a gardener? Well, I think it was somewhere inside me from generations back. My grandfather on my dad's side was a farmer, um, very dyslexic, which I am as well. Uh, it's quite a strong gene. So he could never do anything written. So he worked very much with his hands and, and, and did gardening, which I wasn't hugely aware of. But if, if it's genetic, it will have definitely come through him. And also on my mum's side, my mum's a keen gardener. My grandmother, she was German and she was not only an amazing gardener, but a fantastic um, sort of mycologist. She knew everything about fungus and mushrooms. So sort of a naturalist, really. And I, I think that it was just a part of life. As a child, we were always outdoors. We were always making dens and camps and fires. And so that kind of outdoor thing was, was just a part of, of growing up. But actually gardening as a job was never something that occurred to me. It was never something that was brought to my attention when I was at school, for example. Or I work a lot with schools now because of this. I feel like if someone had said to me when I was 16, why not be a gardener or why not be a garden designer or anything then I might have gone straight into it but I didn't um I sort of fell into it because there was a local job going and I thought oh well I'll see what happens and I turned up I think I expressed to the head gardener a slight concern at having gone from a minimum wage job to a two pounds an hour job which is what an apprenticeship wage was <laughs> and because I expressed concern at that and said I had to think about it he actually blacklisted me from the interview process again like, I had no idea about this so I just kept ringing him and then one day I just turned up unannounced and just said I want to speak to the head gardener please and then they they showed me in and apparently my tenacity unbeknownst to me was what got me the job but um from the moment I walked in I just knew you know the the smells and the sights and it had never occurred to me and then as soon as I was there I was I was sure you know one of those things where you know have you ever applied to a job where you hope you don't get it because you don't want to have to make that decision yes and this this I started off like that and then as soon as I walked in I was like I really really want this job I just knew so, yeah, it's very interesting. You mentioned the, the, the smells and the sights and, and that's what gardening is about, isn't it? The sensory experience as much as anything else. Absolutely. I remember working in a shop before that and, and being at school, which I hated. <laughs> um, the, there's something awful about the same smell every day that greets you in an office or in a shop or in an institution of any kind and then when you become a gardener those smells change every day is different you know it may have just rained and that brings a whole new sensory experience or you know I remember the wallflowers coming into flower that first year when I was an apprentice all the smells they're just constantly changing and and that for someone like me and probably like any gardener who likes to feel the, the the change of the seasons who likes to not feel trapped is really important. 
And there's there's no such thing as bad weather really either. If once you're accustomed to going outside, you think, okay, bring it on, whatever it might be, wind, rain, sun, whatever. Absolutely. I mean, one the one thing that I used to find difficult was standing for a long time on frozen ground. <laughs> that was tough. I think we planted fifty thousand bulbs my first year as an apprentice, and that was a baptism of fire. It was really cold. It was a really cold winter, and we had to plant them in spades depth because we were doing herbaceous perennials on the top, and it was breaking through frozen ground all day long <laughs> that was tough you know I, I got through it and I and I love it you know that there, there is you can always warm up you can't cool down I learned that you know a, a mowing day in the height of summer that's a tough day whereas uh, a digging day in the depths of winter you know you get nice and warm quite quickly have you ever felt being at a disadvantage with the physical labor of gardening by being a woman um yes there is, annoyingly, I hate to admit it, there is an undeniable differentiation between men and women in terms of strength. When I was 20 and doing my apprenticeship and then the following few years when I was working with um, the new apprentices, I used to make a point of never letting them do more than I did. So if they had four sacks of compost in a wheelbarrow, I would, even though I'd maybe be more comfortable with three. And I was so fit. You know, I remember eating fish and chips probably at least once a week back then and being as, as fit as I've ever been despite that but as I've got older um obvious back problems having been a gardener for such a long time you know I've had herniated discs and whatnot and I I am now aware that I I can't or I'd have to really build back up to that point again um I, I used to not let people get the better of me just because they were male but now I have to accept defeat sometimes and also, I guess you bring other talents to the garden. You know, it doesn't have to be the heavy lifting or the breaking of the soil. It's more about thinking about the plants and the, and the interrelation of everything. And that, that you yeah. don't need to be physically strong for that. No, and it's not nice to sort of um, to generalise people in terms of their genders. But I do believe, and the more, the more as I get older and I know more and more women, uh, and have a huge respect for women, and I actually do feel that, that women can bring an amazing thing to gardening that, that some men also can bring that there, there are different things and when I look back at the history of gardening and horticulture there are some amazing women in horticulture and there have been throughout history which is you can't say that about many industries really it's people like Gertrude Jekyll Beth Chatto amazing women who have brought something else to horticulture that's an amazing woman called uh, Ruth Dowd who I've been recently learning about and she's you know this sort of laid backness she's just throwing hay around and not bothering to plant potatoes stick them on the ground cover them in some hay and they'll still make potatoes you know this this difference this different approach to to growing which is sometimes maybe a more natural thing for women and, and a kind of attention to detail that we can bring and an innovation that we can bring. Yes, it's not just gender. I think there's age as well and, and yeah. background and heritage and everything. Within the gardening world, there are constituents who feel that they know best and mm -hmm. they tend to be the, the old school gardeners. Have you come across that? Because you're young and you're female and I guess you're right for them to pounce upon. Do you get? I, I get this thing um, and I had it at a flower show as well. Someone came up to me, a man and put his hand out and then shook my hand and then said those aren't gardeners hands automatic assumption that you don't actually know anything because you're younger female whatever yeah I, I have definitely come across that in different in different ways and in different contexts I think that the classic allotment you know you turn up to an allotment as a gardener 
automatically people are watching you and my allotment is not an orthodox allotment you know it's full of weeds um, which I'm happily welcoming um, and more and more every year I'm embracing that kind of approach to gardening I think what I find is generally in you do have to kind of prove yourself but if you can justify yourself or if you can explain yourself to people they're often really open to it and I've had people all around me on my allotment complaining about certain things and then when I show them like um, a, a ragwort that I had last year which was absolutely covered in cinnabar moth caterpillars and um, people were saying well you should let that grow and when I showed them the, the caterpillars I then came the next day and there was a little group of people standing around my my ragwort looking at the caterpillars then they totally got it and I find that's that's the way that you you sometimes do have to justify yourself and and defend yourself as a young woman but often people are very open to it where I find that there is a more resistant group is actually in the gardening media in the in the tv it, you put yourself out there and quite often you're billed as an expert which is what other someone else has written about you I would never describe myself as an expert I think as gardeners we always have a lot more to learn there's always more I change every year my ethos about certain things and learn new things every day um but if you're if you're billed as an expert and you're going out to people who have been gardening their whole lives that can cause a bit of, of friction when you accept a television contract and you accept that you're working on television does it become does it change your life in as much as you actually become a very public face i i don't look anymore on things like the facebook page on on certain programs when they go out because there's so, there's a lot of hostility and i and I, I think i just get really disappointed when you hear people dismiss you publicly based purely on your gender and your age that it's really hard to hear I think a lot of people find that more in TV work, ironically, than in actual gardening. And does it yeah. then start to intrude upon your life and what you hold to be important? I mean, a very cursory search for Frances Tophill, up comes the Daily Express, which says, <gasps> is she married? I know, I had that, this is because this year I've started doing Instagram after many years of people telling me I should. And I put on, there's something on there about like, um, Francis opened up about a hard time and I think it's something to do with growing vegetables you know it's like the, the pick up on the small thing this is no this is very new to me that element of things is very new to me and I I very much value my privacy so you'll also find that there isn't anything about whether I'm married or whether you know because I don't want people to know that it's a strange thing well don't let's go down that route then because that is depressing in society let's get back <laughs> to the gardening <laughs> and the joy that it gives us you having had that first job you then went to Edinburgh to get formally trained is that right yes I did I imagined when I started gardening I'd do design because I've always been very uh creative but didn't actually go down that route at all and and uh, I have not huge amounts of interest in it. I've done the odd garden design thing. I find it quite stressful <laughs> and much harder work. Um, what I found a fascination with was plants from the beginning. Amazing things. And when I looked at getting more qualified, there weren't many colleges. So I did my apprenticeship at Hadlow College in Kent and then Edinburgh Botanics. That was sort of it. I applied for Q. I didn't get on the Q diploma, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> it was a tough, tough interview. But, um, but yeah, so... I wanted to change and Edinburgh for me one hands down and I absolutely loved it and some amazing people some of my lecturers there uh, Phil Lusby particularly stands out he's he was instrumental in getting the British native flora seed collection for the Wakehurst place um, Millennium Seed Bank and worked on things like the NVC and mapping British native flora and just an amazingly kind hugely knowledgeable person but everyone there was you know 
experts in mosses, experts in ferns, plant evolution, ecology, conservation. The whole thing was I was terrible at science at school and I didn't think I had much of an interest in that. But the more I, you know, once, once you learn about plants and fungus and lichens and algae, and it takes you down this, this route into this incredible, fascinating world. I have um, this lovely image of the young Francis dashing from lecture to lecture, <laughs> plunging her hands into, into soil and, and tenderly looking after plants and, and, and swatting up in books in the evening. Is that right? Basically, yes. I mean, dashing mainly because of the rain in Scotland. <laughs> but it's just amazing learning. And you know, I know that I have particular lectures in mind where you know we would go into the um, herbarium, and my lecturer Greg got out a, a sort of type specimen pressed that Charles Darwin had collected from South America. You know, and you're and you're looking, you're able to touch this stuff, and it is just, it was incredible, amazing. And it's interesting that you say it was more academic than practical. Do you think that would put anyone a, a wannabe gardener now? Do you think that would put them off? Because there's quite a lot of Latin names to learn. You know, if you love something, uh, as I love plants and the natural world, it's not difficult to learn about it because you already have that love. And that, under and also a practical application. I could never understand algebra because I couldn't see how it was relevant to the world. Whereas if you're learning about um, genetics and cells, and you can see that actually manifest itself in a plant and its growth or its evolution, then it's practical. There's a huge gap in horticulture uh, for that kind of academic elements of it as well. And it's, it's really undersold. We sell ourselves short as gardeners. I think working with schools and seeing a lot of young people going into the gardening clubs, uh, it's usually those who are not performing academically or who struggle with the classroom environment and of course, gardening has an amazing thing to offer those kinds of people in terms of learning teamwork and, and inner confidence and um, communication skills and all these amazing things. But there's also a part of gardening that can be very academic and we need that. We need conservationists and researchers and people in labs. You know, even the pharmaceutical industry relies heavily on, on botanicals and, you know, that there are a lot of parts of the horticultural industry that we don't mention and we sell horticulture short as being something for those who can't achieve academically and it absolutely isn't because actually even being a gardener you can make a huge difference to the world so no you shouldn't be put off by that. I think it's nice that you distinguish that academic side which you're right is slightly the unsung hero isn't it of, of, of gardening. Mm. I remember hearing an academic talk about the fungi in the soil and like you I'm not a scientist but I was absolutely riveted and it's completely informed my growing ever since but the other side to gardening which I think has happened which again you touched on is that gardeners aren't just about pruning and latin names they're now about nature conservation they're about well-being they're about our impact on the planet and our relationship with all of this would you agree with that yeah I, I really would the more I look into all of this the more I realize that gardeners and custodians of smaller patches of land we have a lot more space than we think I mean obviously agriculture takes up a huge amount of the, of the landscape whereas gardeners we have a lot more small spaces and we have complete control over those spaces for however long we're we're there and with that you know the more experts and amazing people I speak to the more I realize that we can actually really turn the tide you know that there are a lot of conservation issues particularly with things like insects I, I was lucky enough to meet Dave Goulson last year with Gardeners World and he was he's professor at Sussex University isn't he he is yes 
the bee he's known <laughs> <laughs> and he's written some incredible books um the garden jungle and the insect apocalypse which is a very foreboding title but but basically he he argues and more and more people are coming to this way of thinking that, that gardeners are the people who hold the key to being able to change this because we grow a huge array of different flower species that bring in pollinators of all different kinds we have a huge network the actual mass of gardens across the country is is much bigger than we would think we are in urban spaces which is potentially a place that could be devoid of any wildlife and yet actually we have the ability to bring it in and to house it and to provide shelter water safe nesting nesting materials uh, pollen food you know everything that um different species need to survive and, and and we as gardeners have that so i think there is a changing approach to gardening and it's, it's not just about these sterile spaces that provide for us whether it's just visually or for what we want to eat we, we recognize a more holistic approach i think to to our place in the world and that our gardens can enhance the world not just our own lives one of the lovely things that organic gardening principles have is is to misquote john kennedy ask not what nature can do for you but what you can do for nature and i think that's so true isn't it and yeah. within our own pot even if it's just a pot on the balcony did you know francis and this is a fascinating thing you talk about gardens being as important as agricultural land there's over half a million hectares of gardens stroke allotment stroke community growing areas in the uk that's an area the size of Northumberland. That's so imagine if they were all grown according to organic principles or according to sustainable principles. Wouldn't that yeah. be powerful? It, it, and, and I think it will get that way. I think there is a misconception that gardening is always sustainable just because we're growing natural things. And actually, it's not. And it's been not sustainable for a very long time. We're buying in plants from who knows where. We need to be asking nurseries. I think that I think we as gardeners have that onus on us to express to the people that we buy our plants from that we actually care about their provenance and how they've been grown and that leads me on to my final question what do you do when you're not gardening francis um all sorts <laughs> i i'm one of those people who finds it quite hard to switch off and stop and i'm most happy when i'm creating anything i do a lot of of pottery um i haven't done it now for well since the beginning of the pandemic which is very sad <laughs> but but that's my my normal way of being is doing a lot a lot of pottery um I do sewing I do knitting I do lots of walking I love being out in nature you know I I, I, I may be a gardener but um I find it hard to switch off when I go to gardens because I'm always analyzing whether I would have put that plant with that plant or even what is that plant whereas in nature I can switch off I can just look at the way that the trees are growing together in the fields you know it's it, it's lovely Francis, I'm so grateful that you spent time chatting for this podcast. It's just been a delight talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely lovely. My thanks to Francis for taking time out in her busy schedule to chat with me. Don't forget, you can hear the next part of our conversation in our Unpruned podcast later this month. We talk about her latest book, Rewild Your Garden. And we explore the whole issue of rewilding and how relevant it is today. Make sure you don't miss it. Press the subscribe button now and it'll pop into your inbox. Now, it's time to open the post bag. Chris and I are joined this month by Hannah and Sally, our colleagues at Garden Organic. Hannah, what's our first question? Right, so with the first question, um, someone's contacted us and said they've got a plum cot tree, which is blossoming this year for the first time. 
do they need another plum or apricot tree to help with pollination? And I guess the place to start here is, is what is a plum cot tree? Sally? Okay, well, a plum cot is one of those weird things that's um, completely man-made. It's an, a cross between a plum and an apricot, but it's only a Japanese plum that will cross with an apricot. So you start at one end and you have ones that are nearly all apricot and hardly any plum. And at the other end, you have ones that are nearly all plum and hardly any apricot. And they taste somewhere in between. But of course, because they're interspecific hybrids, because it's a Japanese plum, which is tender, they won't pollinate very easily with any of our native species of plum. You can't have, a, say, a Victoria plum and expect that to, to cross-pollinate with it. It has to be a Japanese plum something like Lizzie or Burbank tangerine, which tend to be very tender and um, difficult to grow in this country. You need them against a wall. So really, you want another plum or apricot hybrid or an apricot tree or a Japanese plum. And Sally, if you haven't got a Japanese plum or an apricot tree nearby, what, what would you suggest to help with pollination? Try hand pollinating. The, bee, the bees tend to ignore them. I, I don't know if the pollen tastes a bit strange, um, so get a soft brush or a pussy willow or even use your fingers and dab it between each flower. Usually do it early in the morning. That's when the stamens are producing most pollen. Do that every day for a couple of weeks as long as it's got flowers on it. And then hopefully you might see a decent set. Gosh, that's quite a commitment, isn't it? So I would say similar. These sound like quite hard work. What's the advantage of them? Do they produce a particularly well, tasty fruit? It is nice tasting fruit. As I said, it's between a plum and an apricot. They're very juicy. And of course, they're slightly hardier than most of the apricots you can grow in this country. Oh, that's a very um, good point, Sally, because I was just going to add, we've had particularly heavy frosts this past month around uh, where I am. And I've been dashing in and out with fleece because my cherry tree is coming into blossom, but I don't want to lose that to the yeah. frost. And so I've been covering it with fleece at night and then down in the morning to take the fleece off so the insects can get to it to pollinate. Has mm. anyone else been doing this? Yes, covered my um, red currants on the allotment, but I'm afraid I missed it one night and looking at it the flowers look as if they've been boiled you know it's funny isn't it because it has been really cold i was visiting kew um, at the weekend and all the rhododendron all the flowers have been burnt they've kind of gone black where they get these really cold nights at the moment so it's certainly if you've got something precious and it's got blossom on it then it's a good idea to protect it that's for sure yeah. and these frosts may well continue into may well it's, it's not i don't think it's that i mean when i started out it get, a frost in may was not that unusual really i think it's only in recent years isn't it we've been avoiding them but um you mentioned hardiness there so would these would you cite these south facing with that or they can be a bit more are they a bit harder than that i would still say south facing and sheltered but they're supposedly a bit hardier than that i think it varies quite a lot with the variety cotton candy seems to be the best so far that one's more or less self-fertile flavor king needs a pollinator to be quite honest if it was me i'd, I'd go for tomcot which is a very hardy apricot well I'm not sure I'll be rushing out to get one, but it's certainly interesting. So the, question, the second question is also on the subject of fruit trees. A listener has contacted us and said, last year for the first time I had worms in my cherries. Any advice to avoid this would be really helpful. Oh dear, this sounds like it's Drosophila Suzuki. It's not a fruit fly with a motorbike, it's a Japanese <laughs> fruit fly that's um, come over, probably in infected produce really difficult to deal with 
It's absolutely tiny. It's less than three millimetres long. It's called the spotted wing drosophila. And if you actually get one under a microscope or a really good hand lens, you can see that it's got two little dark spots on the wings. And these are a new pest, are they, Sally? Yes, they've come in over the last 10 years and they eat almost anything. They, they lay their eggs inside the developing fruit and they hatch out. The only sign is where you've actually had one leave which looks like somebody's used a fairy dart or something like that, a little tiny pinprick on the surface of the fruit. What you tend to notice is that the fruit goes rotten before it's even ripe from the inside out. So it looks perfect. You either bite into it or you, you cut it and it, all the middle is rotten. If it's raspberries, again, you hardly notice them in the same way as you hardly notice raspberry beetle maggots. But these are much smaller than raspberry beetle maggots. And again, they cause this rapid rotting best way of telling is to pick a bowl of raspberries, leave them somewhere overnight covered. And if you've got Drosophila Suzuki, you will end up with a thing of raspberry puree with a few maggots floating on the top. Oh, wow. Are raspberries and cherries their only host? No, they will go for strawberries, apples, tomatoes, blackberries, all the hybrid berries. So all the soft fruits then, really, they're attacking? Not just soft fruit. They'll go for for top fruit as well. Oh, right. They're a really damaging pest. Do you think we can do to, to uh, deter them in terms of putting other plants in? Well, possibly you can plant things around your trees that act as dead-end hosts. Things like aurum, snowberry, symphoricarpus, possibly birds. Cerberus, and they they can attack these, but they can't actually develop. And they're not letting them complete the life cycle. Yes, you, so you, you you're lowering numbers that way. So it's like decoy planting, isn't it? And really, really fine environment um, over it. But to be quite honest, if you can get anything that doesn't have a two millimetre gap over a, a living tree, you're, you're doing better than I've ever managed. What about <laughs> things like um, do making sure you pick the fruit right? Yes, pick, pick the fruit as soon as it's ripe. Don't let it go overripe on the tree. If you have any rotten berries, put them in a plastic bag, very tightly sealed. I'd recommend just putting them straight in the landfill bin. Not on Um, your own compost heap. Do not compost. Pick up any rotting fruit, rake up anything underneath. Full on, full on hygiene. Um, yeah, really, really good garden hygiene. Just put my landscape hat on for a minute. I mean, snowberry, symphoricarpus is quite a good one for hedging, isn't it? Quite a hard plant, isn't it? So it might might be worth popping a few. Actually, you can strike it from hardwoods and stuff, can't you? It's yeah, not yeah. And something like Aura Metallicum pictum, which is quite decorative yes i know yeah yeah very nice it spreads like crazy if you let it sally there are some native species of parasitic wasps which will attack the ordinary fruit fly i'm guessing none of them will work um well they haven't yet but i think it's more because they haven't noticed that they're here yet it's a little bit like horse chestnut leaf miner. You must have seen this on conker trees that all of a sudden by midsummer the conker trees look as if their leaves are dying. Yeah. Now what I have noticed is that as soon as you've got young blue tits, they immediately go for these as food. They just sit underneath the trees and look up above them and they can see the silhouette of a leaf miner in the leaf. They jump up, pull it out of the leaf, eat it. And this has diminished the numbers of the pests to a manageable level. It may be in a hundred years. Yes, we've got Drosophila Suzuki, but we'll have a predator. It's dealt with. Mm-hmm. And are these a problem across the country? 
they're spreading northwards. It'll be interesting to see if this cold spring holds them back because it's killed a lot of other insects. Okay, so it's Drosophila suzuki. suzuki. How, how do you spell that, fellow? Just as a motorbike, but with an, with another eye. I love yeah. the idea of a fly zooming it about on a motorbike. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. So moving on to question number three. We've been contacted by someone who said they were a little rash with their bean plants, which they sowed at the end of March. They were killed by the frost in April as they forgot to put them back in the greenhouse overnight. And is it too late to start sowing again now? Chris, what would you say? Well, these will be runner beans or French climbing beans or dwarf beans we're talking about rather than broads. Broads will be in the ground now and they're nice and frost In fact, people put them in the autumn and overwinter them. But um, don't worry about this. Every gardener, even the most experienced gardener, jumps a bit, I think, when they see a few sunny days. You go, oh, I've got to get seed sowing. You're dying to get out the other side of winter and you're dying to sow. It's not bad news at all. In fact, I've only just put my runner beans in. I remember, they're a tender crop, like your courgettes and your tommies and stuff, and they won't go out into situ till the end of May anyway. It brings up a good point, though, really, in a way about sowing generally, because I think when I first started out in my allotment, I did a really heavy spring sowing, and you, what happens, you can end up with this big glut in the summer and probably more than you can eat. And one thing I've learned in the last five years as an allotment here is making sure I spread that seed sowing out a bit. So making sure you can sow continually through, you're going to have winter crops, uh, making sure as one thing expires, you've got something else coming through. A good example of that would be, I like my salad crops, as you well know, and my, and my carrots and uh, radish, and I tend to inter-sow those. So I'll sow drills, and then I'll, a few weeks later, I'll sow in between those drills, so I keep the crop rolling. Things like turnips, swedes, I'll be putting them in quite late, the cabbages. So try and keep your seed sowing rolling. It's not just a spring job, and I think from a gardening point of view, that makes it all a lot more exciting, really. I think you're absolutely right, Chris. I think sowing really carries on throughout the summer. You mentioned your autumn vegetables like cabbage and kale, purple sprouting broccoli. But also I think there's quite an interesting thing that some people have shown that if you sow carrots slightly later, late spring in summer, you may have avoided that first infestation of carrot root fly. So that's worth bearing in mind. And I've also found it helps to sow late for radishes and those Chinese leaves, which get absolutely munched to pieces by the flea beetle early in the summer. So I don't sow those until July. So, yes, I agree with you, Chris. Keep sowing throughout the summer. It really isn't too late to sow. And if you do your run of beans and uh, now I'll say it's a good time to sow, just make sure you harden them off properly as well, because that'll obviously help them if you get a cold, quick cold night at the end of the month. So bring them out during the day, let them sunbathe take them back in and keep them warm for the evening. Just get that hardening off going. Just so by the time you plant out, you've got two advantages to that, really. Once you've got a plant that's acclimatised, three or so, the yeah, next one, obviously, is that you've hardened them off a bit. They've put on a bit of growth, less prone to slugs and snails as well. There's quite a lot of regional differences here. We're talking down south, and we assume that we can get our beans in uh, mm. sometime in May. I'm guessing that if you live up in Scotland, you're laughing and saying, yeah, no way, mate, not until June. Well, I'm quite interested in the south this year because we mm. have had, for the first time in a while, a proper cold spring. We've had bud burn on the magnolias, that kind of thing. It's a bit of a reminder that this is, we're not fully out of winter yet. We're not out of it yet, you know. And you, it kind of, mm. As a gardener, you've always got to be watching the weather. Yeah. You were saying about the beans. What I've often done is to um, do a second sowing of beans around the end of June, beginning of July run of beans and then if we get a hot spell the first sowing sometimes give up but the second ones if you, especially if I have a mild autumn will crop up until you know nearly October. That's a very good tip. 
And Hannah, I sympathise with the person who wrote in because I fell into this trap, exactly this trap, this time last year. And I actually thought all my runner beans were killed by the frost in May. I left them in the ground and interestingly, they weren't killed. They were knocked back. But by a month later, they were good to go. And I got wonderful beans from them. Okay, that's brilliant. All right, thanks ever so much, guys. Cheers, everybody. Bye, Hannah. Bye. Bye. Well, we've come to the end of this month's podcast. But don't forget, you can hear the rest of Francis' interview in our Unpruned episode, which will be out later this month. Just be sure to press subscribe and you won't miss it, especially if you're interested in rewilding and how you can bring this concept into your own growing area. Next month, Chris is down at Wrighton. It's the home of Garden Organic, and he'll be showing us around the organic demonstration garden there. Until then, enjoy this perfect May time. Maybe stop a minute and listen to the birds. Their song makes us feel like nature is bursting with new life. Bye for now. Our thanks to the Organic Catalogue for sponsoring us and to Kevin MacLeod for the music. <laughs>